Okay, and welcome folks to episode 12 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. So today I have Dr. Graham Close. Hi, Graham. Hello, Lawrence. Hey. So uh, today's going to be kind of a, a, a mix and match. Um, for those of you uh, in the UK, you probably know, know Graham. Uh, he's quite well known over here and internationally. Um, of course, I've got lots of different guests on, on this show, uh, but I think for those that don't know Graham, it's worth saying a few things about him. He is a, uh, a senior lecturer and a reader at Liverpool John Moores uh, University, um, a well-established academic with lots of um, uh, publications out there. Uh, I've certainly heard Graham speak at many uh, international conferences and of course he speaks on um, the ISSN diploma program that I that I lead and uh, I'm uh, genuinely uh, always impressed with what Graham has to say as well as um, amused Graham has that rare talent of being both um, a great expert and academic and also to a certain extent um, a stand-up co- uh, comedian I hope you don't mind my saying Graham um, so maybe maybe we'll get a, a few line one-liners out of you on this uh, podcast um, but uh, there's a number of things that that Graham is um, uh, a particular expert in and and uh, those would be in the areas of vitamin D um, antioxidants and also uh, Graham is a well uh, exper- a highly experienced practitioner working in the fields of uh, rugby uh, him himself being a previous uh, professional rugby league player, uh, as well as many other sports like uh, Great Britain snowboarding and uh, jockeys and all kinds of wonderful things. So it's, it's great to have you here, Graham, and I'm um, looking forward to digging into the, into your great brain here. Well, we'll do our best and see where we can go, eh? Cool. Okie dokie. So let's just dive straight in. The first sort of topic I, I wanted to get into was vitamin D. Yes. Um, vitamin D is... Is I mean it's uh, it's funny, isn't it? It's about ten, fifteen years ago. I think you'd be hard pressed to to hear much about vitamin D, particularly in the sports and exercise nutritional, sports science field. I mean, t- tell us why vitamin D is now becoming such a big thing. Do you know, Lauren? You're exactly right, and I'm almost embarrassed to uh, to be a vitamin D expert at the moment because it seems like it's a real trendy one, and there's probably not a disease in the world at the moment that somebody isn't claiming that uh, giving high-dose vitamin D would cure. And, and whilst I think it's an exciting and a very interesting vitamin, um, I do think some of the claims are a little bit over-exaggerated. And you're right, around about 10 years ago now, um, a clinic um, colleague of mine, he's actually a nephrologist, said to me that from a nephrology perspective, they were becoming interested in vitamin D. And maybe there may be some crossover for... Uh, some of the muscle studies that I was doing. So I, I did a little bit of reading, and yeah, it would appear that, that there was a, an interesting pathway to explore. And you're right, since then, the number of publications has, has gone through the roof. And like I said, there's not a single condition out there at the moment that uh, vitamin D isn't blamed for the, for the consequences of. Yeah, so I mean, I think, I mean, let, let's just quickly uh, discuss what vitamin D actually is, because it's it's not even necessarily a vitamin, is it? No, no, absolutely. And that's the first point to get across. It should probably be sued under the Trades Description Act <laughs> because um, there's nothing really vitamin about it. If you actually think about what a vitamin is, it's something that cannot be synthesized by the body and we need to get through the diet. 
but we know that the predominant way we get vitamin D is from uh, sunlight exposure. You know, uh, around about 90% of our vitamin D comes from the sunlight and the remaining 10%. So we can more than meet the, the body's need without any dietary intake. So, as I said, it, it really shouldn't be classed as a vitamin. If you want to go back further enough, the reason it is classed as a vitamin is that originally um, it was discovered that there was a certain compound within cod liver oil that uh, was preventing rickets. Uh, at the time, it was thought that this was vitamin A, so people were told to take cod liver oil to prevent rickets. Studies went on that basically got rid of vitamin A from the cod liver oil, but yet it was still preventing rickets. So they knew that there must be something else in there, and at that time, vitamin D hadn't been identified. But they just the way vitamins are named in order of the discovery, A, B, C, was ready up to vitamin D. So they just called this compound vitamin D. Um, and was recommending that people took cod liver oil because of the vitamin D which was in it, even though it hadn't been isolated, and then we would prevent rickets. So, so as you say, yeah, it, it's not um, it's not truly a vitamin. It probably would be better described as a, a pro-hormone, um, so a, a compound that leads to the production of a hormone, with the hormone uh, being 25-hydroxyvitamin D, and... 25-OHD, which is obviously the hormone coming from the pro-hormone, is described as a, a secosteroid, so it's almost got steroid-like properties. So it has many, many important roles in the body. So it's really important that we do get um, this pro-hormone to result in the 25-OHD hormone, which has effects on many, many target tissues. And if we actually look at the vitamin D receptor, it's probably now been identified on, on most tissues. And I think that's when the sports scientists got interested in vitamin D, when the vitamin D receptor was uh, shown to be present uh, on skeletal muscle. So if there's a receptor on skeletal muscle, it must be having an important uh, role there. And, and I, I guess that's the role of my lab at the moment. We're really trying to understand what is the role of uh, vitamin D within skeletal muscle. Yeah, I mean... It, it's just funny, isn't it, as you roll off just just even just a fraction of what we're about to get into about vitamin D. I mean, you just look up stuff about vitamin D. It, it, it On paper, at least, it's incredibly impressive, isn't it? Um, we're just constantly finding new things that it's involved with or new things that it does. Yeah, I mean, we, if we split this into what vitamin D scientists would talk about, the classical actions and the non-classical actions. So... The classical ones, things that we know and we've known for many years, we'll be talking about the way it regulates calcium homeostasis, so a really important role there. And then that obviously gets us thinking about muscle function and cardiac function. We know the really important role that it has in, in bone metabolism, um, and the, we know that without vitamin D, the, the disease rickets will happen. It's even been shown now in the UK that rickets is on the rise because of we, there's an actual uh, evidence to show we are chronically vitamin D deficient in the UK. And the other classical action is in terms of its role within neuromuscular function. But if we look at the non-classical actions, so things that we're now beginning to identify, major effects on uh, immune function, uh, mitochondrial function, uh, cell proliferation and differentiation. Uh, people are suggesting it's got major roles within certain cancers. So uh, absolutely whole host of things and that is because 
it is this pro-hormone and that's how we've got to think of it and I think a lot of people like we, we got all excited about vitamin C and then we lost interest in it um, I think we need to stop thinking about it as a vitamin D and just start thinking about it as being something that's making a really important hormone within the body and because of a modern lifestyle we're probably not making as much of this important hormone as we should be yeah and I, th I mean that's a good sort of point that segues into one of the things I wanted to get into about vitamin D because of course some people say oh well you don't need to supplement it because you know we get it naturally just from exposure to the sun's radiation uh, but but you know I mean you know you and I live in the UK which isn't exactly famous for having a whole lot of sun and uh, unless we're walking around uh, naked all day and um, I mean you know there, there are issues there aren't there about expectations yeah. of what we can achieve just from exposure to, to sunshine yeah living in the UK so particularly living at northern latitudes is, is a problem so the, the first factor is that you know I'm with you the last time I saw the sun I think was 1987 <laughs> but we, we, we don't really get it on a regular basis certainly in the northwest of England but the, the angle of the sun is really important what we call the sun's uh, zenith angle so we, we in the winter time, this zenith angle of the sun doesn't allow conversion of um, dehydrocholesterol in the skin to pre-vitamin D to vitamin D. So we've got to get the right angle of the sun. Some people, I don't know if it's an exact science, but it's not a bad rule of thumb, is that if your shadow's taller than the height of you, the probability is the angle of the sun isn't right for conversion of um, vitamin D. So in the winter months, it can even be a nice sunny day, we're not going to get it. So in the UK, we know that because of that, we become deficient in the winter. The, the other thing to bear in mind is sunscreen. High-factor sunscreen is uh, known to affect it. Um, UV-protected clothing. So we see a lot of athletes these days in the summer competing in skins. Uh, we see them putting a lot of sunscreen on. Uh, we, we only probably need about 30, 20 to 30 minutes of good quality, you know, face and arms exposure and we, we'd get a decent dose of it but we've also got to bear in mind skin pigmentation so darker skinned uh, athletes would need longer to get the same effects because um, uh, the the melanin within the skin is, is acting as a, a natural sunscreen so variety of factors yes yeah i think that's i mean in this podcast one of the things we're constantly getting into is this business of um into individual variability, you know, whether we're talking about protein needs or fat oxidation or, of course, my favorite subject being context uh, is always of interest. But obviously that applies to this very much. And I mean, folk that are listening to this podcast are already starting to think, wow, you know, I, I kind of need to walk around with a sundial. Uh, and uh, I mean, I mean, realistically, most people spend way too much time indoors as it is. And we tend to be at work during, you know, the usual sort of sunshine hours of the day. So the chances that we're going to get adequate exposure to, uh, to to sunshine so that we can manufacture an optimal amount of vitamin D is, is, is pretty scant, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and, and then you, the health scientists like myself will always get very nervous about recommending sun exposure because of obviously the, the well-known effects of sun burn and uh, and skin cancer and that type of thing. We know that it's a pre-erythral uh, dose of vitamin of sunlight we need. So before you really start to get red, certainly before you'd get burnt, where you would get a uh, good production of, of vitamin D. Uh, 
But, but yeah, exa- exactly right. There is inter- individual variation, um, and not everyone would react the same way. One of the important reasons, if we can get it from sunlight rather than tablet form, but, and it's worth emphasising if we can, is that the skin will regulate the amount of vitamin D. So if we get a lot of skin exposure, the, the pre-colour calciferol in the skin, which is like pre-vitamin D3, gets converted to a inert photoproducts, products, doesn't actually enter systemic circulation. Whereas we take it in tablet form, we do offer uh, a risk if we get the dosage wrong of actually getting vitamin D toxic, which can result in renal stones and, uh, and other issues that we really don't want to happen. So it, it could be argued that the natural way uh, and the way we was meant to get it and the way we regulate getting it is sunlight, but please don't let your listeners think I'm advocating get it but get sunburnt and, and um, start looking like um, you've been tangled in your day glow orange. You know, <laughs> that's, that. that's your usual look, isn't it, Graham? <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan of the, um, yeah, the sunbeds in Liverpool. Yes, that, that's me, Lauren. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we, I mean, our listeners are all around the world. We've got plenty in North America and Australia and uh, many other places that have more sunshine than we're used to. But, of course, we're not just looking at the sunshine as a, as a source of vitamin D. We also get it from our food, right? Yeah, some foods have it, but, you know, in real small quantities. And that's why I think it, it's not right, but it's, it is classes of vitamin. Most of the foods that have it are fortified foods. Um, you know, some oily fish uh, would, would, would have it, um, some fortified milks, um, certain types of mushrooms like, you know, the shiitake uh, mushrooms. Um, but not a massive amount. And a lot of this uh, is D2, which isn't as effective as D3, which we get from um, from sunlight. And the, the worrying thing as well is that there's been a, a few studies put out there which would show that some foods that claim to be fortified with vitamin D actually have very negligible amounts in some having no vitamin D in it. So uh, it, it can be quite hard to men- meet your dietary needs, oh, sorry, your, your vitamin D requirements purely from, from a diet. So uh, again, this is why it's probably not the best thing to think of it as a vitamin because it is hard to, hard to do from your diet. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point because, of course, we, we assume that simply because we swallow a food or swallow a supplement where on the label it says, you know, vitamin D, blah, blah, blah. We just assume we're getting our vitamin D. Uh, and for reasons you've just explained, that, that almost certainly isn't the case or at least not. I think uh, it's worth quickly delving into another topic here, which is um, types of vitamin D. Uh, you mentioned, you know, vitamin D2. Do you, do you want to just quickly describe the various types of vitamin D that exist? Okay, so, so there's ma- two major types. Obviously, vitamin D2, um, which you might see uh, as ergocalciferol, and then you've got vitamin D3, uh, colocalciferol. D3 is what we're getting from sunlight, and as I say, it, it's um, around about nine and a half times to one more um, active than, um, than D2. And D2 is what we generally get from a diet. Um, in terms of supplements, you can get D2 and D3 supplements, but if you was going to supplement, you should certainly 
supplementing with uh, with D3. So a lot of the cheaper supplements would have D2 in it, which, which isn't as a, as effective as D3. Yeah, okay. So obviously we've established that ideally we would um, get our vitamin D from appropriate exposure to sunshine, particularly when the zenith angle is, is all ideal and perfect. Um, we probably shouldn't expect to get optimal amounts um, just by eating food, obviously. Um, but before maybe we get into taking supplements, I mean, we should bear in mind that there is a potential for toxicity, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, some, but there are some people out there, some very well-respected vitamin D scientists that would argue this case, mm. or would certainly say that the toxic levels are much higher than what the likes of the US Institute of Medicine and the European Food Standards Agency would, would, uh, would suggest. Uh, and this is where a lot of the confusion comes with, uh, with vitamin D, trying to establish what is sufficient, what is optimal, and uh, what is toxic. Now, there is proven uh, evidence in the literature that really high doses uh, have caused you know, serious side effects. These are generally when it's been a mistake so when someone's um, been given a factor of 10, so or even a factor of 1,000, been given milligrams instead of micrograms, for example. So generally when the toxicity happens, um, trying to establish what is an optimum concentration is something that, certainly in terms of muscle function, uh, my lab is trying to do at the moment. The, most people, like USIOM and the European Food Standards Agency, would suggest around about 50 nanomoles per litre of, of being gay, uh, a level for sufficiency. Now, when I've tested athletes, a lot of athletes fall below that. Now, there's a, a growing body of evidence and some very eminent scientists, particularly in the US, who I've got a lot of respect for, who would be saying we should be aiming for over 100 nanomoles per litre, maybe even over 120. Now, um, to date, I've not tested an athlete that naturally would be there without supplementation. Um, and there's a, a growing evidence that certainly in terms of immune function and general health, there may be benefits of taking up to that level. Where the toxicity line falls is difficult to say. Some people have argued that what you can do is say, well, what's the highest reported concentration of vitamin D? from sunlight exposure and there are papers out there uh, from like Peruvian farmers who may be up at the 160, 170 nanomoles per litre who aren't taking any supplements and you could maybe use that to say well if we know the skin would stop toxicity by converting to inert photochemicals maybe that's where we should do the cut off but at the moment I, I think it would be prudent certainly as uh, if you want to go on the conservative side to stick within things like the US IOM guidelines and and the uh, European Food Standards Agency, and, you know, probably aim to keep it um, probably no higher than 120 nanomoles per litre. Yeah, unfortunately, we we I mean, we really do live in this society where we've got this idea that more is better, don't we? Uh, and uh, I know that there's some other nutrients and vitamins we could certainly have that conversation about maybe we'll have time we will um but i mean what do you what do you think the potential risks are of chronic sort of over supplementation with 
with vitamin D could be, you know, not not sort of immediately toxic, but maybe just just overdoing it rather than maybe just playing safe. Uh, the major side effect, if you think what vitamin D doing is uh, mobilizing calcium, um, so you, you can get soft tissue uh, soft tissue calcification, so we can get stone formation and that. Um, a well-respected um, bone expert that I do a little bit of work with uh, believes that he's seeing an increase in actual weakening of bones because in you know well, you got to think that vitamin D is mobilising calcium stores uh, in high dose chronically, potentially mobilising it for within uh, the bone itself, and he tells me that he suspects that one or two uh, athletes that's been referred to him uh, have actually had detrimental bone effects from chronic high-dose uh, supplementation. But, but the major risk that we know about is soft tissue calcification. Yeah. So you've heard, obviously, um, you know, sort of out there in the health and fitness sort of realms, of course, we hear a lot of interesting statements from um, people we refer to as bro scientists as, uh, you know, uh, the various benefits that there are to vitamin D. And, of course, one of the things that you'll hear is um, about this idea of, of, of different approaches to dosing for vitamin D, including sort of mega-dosing several times a week and then, you know, um, maybe taking a, a lower dose on other days or, or a chronic sort of high dose. I mean, what do you feel is the right way to approach this? Okay, so... You know, we've done a lot of work in, in our lab uh, looking at different dosing strategies. And look, if the target or outcome is to get serum 25 OHD, certainly above that 50 nanomoles per litre and closer to the 100 nanomoles per litre, well, we've seen that giving around about 2,000 international units per day would do this. Now, we've also looked at giving it as a one-off per week. And the reason we did it as a one-off per week was purely for compliance in, in research studies that you could actually give the tablet as 14,000 international units, give them a one-off tablet, watch them take it, you know it's been taken. <clears throat> if, the, if the outcome is getting a 25 OHD high, we saw no difference between giving it weekly or, or daily, remembering that it's a, a fat-soluble vitamin, so um, <coughs> excuse me, it you know, accumulates. So... Uh, Personally, I would take um, something like 2,000 international units daily. Um, if I was working within a team setting, just for ease, I, I maybe just do it once a week to make sure that we're getting it um, we're getting it right. And if I could do, I would be testing as well. So the uh, um, vitamin D testing is becoming a lot cheaper and a lot easier. There are some uh, home test kits that are actually pretty good now that. Uh, take a fingertip blood sample, spot it on a piece of card, and you send it off, and your results will come back a week or two later. The key thing here is if you're going to get your vitamin D tested, we need to use tandem mass spectrometry. So the ELISAs and, and other methods aren't really good enough. They're, they're quite poor at picking up vitamin D2, um, pretty good at picking up vitamin D3. So you can get some quite big discrepancies so if you're getting it tested using tandem mass spec, even if you're using one of these home tests where you blot it on a piece of card and get it sent off, you know you'll get some pretty good data back. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, thanks to a, a lecture that you gave on this before, I've started using that with our 
clients and athletes and yes. um, it's, it's great because for a relatively uh, low cost um, you know n- not much more than a, 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 a the cost of a few pints really or maybe four pints <laughs> uh, yeah. it, you, you can London. yeah certainly in London yes that's yeah. for sure nothing Wigan no, 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 it's like, like tap water down here uh, yeah, but, but you die just trying to drink that much alcohol <laughs> I would imagine uh, okay. but yeah <laughs> but we uh, uh, we test every client now and um, it is interesting how many people come back with adequate vitamin d or you know excessively high vitamin d who who on investigation you then discover without them immediately thinking about it they are actually taking um additional vitamin d albeit not a specific vitamin d supplement but it might be in a multi or you look at their diet and they're consuming foods that are fortified so so the reason why i'm saying that is um even if even if we are being super clever and we're um, thinking about what we're taking and how we're taking it and maybe even testing for it, we still need to be aware of, of the places we might find additional vitamin D. And you alluded to this before, but do you want to just quickly... Yeah. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good point, Matt, Lauren, because if you think about vitamin D in terms of its marketing potential, it, in some ways it's gold dust because it appears to be beneficial in everything and it's pennies it really is one of the cheapest things to make. So it can find its way into so many things to boost the claim within that product. So I think we're going to see it in more and more all-in-one type products. Um, lots of, you know, we might see it making its way into free trainers and, and all sorts of things. What we, all, we know that in most multivitamins, you're probably not going to get a problem there because the multivitamins tend to go on BRDA, and BRDA is woefully inadequate. So um, that wouldn't worry me as much, but it, it'd be more people taking supplements that uh, people have got. You know, you can easily put 5,000 international units into a supplement, and this could be a supplement that somebody takes three, four times a day. So now they're getting 20,000 IUs a day. They may not know that it's in that all-in-one. You might then put them on 2,000 IUs, so they're now on 22,000 IUs per day, and now we start getting a little bit worried. Um, the from what are the European Food Standards Agency, and I think the USI OM have said this as well, have suggested that around about there's no reported side effects um, under 10,000 IUs a day. So I certainly would never go above 10,000 IUs a day, you know, to be stay on the safe side. But it's very easy to get above 10,000 IUs um, <clears throat> if you're taking a variety of products that you don't potentially realise uh, as quite high doses in. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, for those listeners that are going, okay, well, look, I don't take a vitamin D uh, or vitamin D for our American listeners. Um, if, if if they're not taking that supplement, and we can in a minute get into the good and bad versions in supplements and so on. Um, but I mean, what what are the sort of the checklists that you would have people try and think about to justify whether or not they should, you know, go ahead and take a supplement, particularly for those that aren't able to or currently aren't in a position to get access to vitamin D testing, what what are the sort of the, 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 the sort of the obvious areas that may suggest, yeah, you probably should should take it. Okay. So if you're living in a northerly latitude, I would be very tempted over the winter months. 
if you're living in, let's say, I've got a colleague um, who's done a lot of work of this in Qatar. Now, obviously, Qatar, 40-odd degree heat, you'd think there isn't a problem there. But it's that hot, you don't go out in the sunlight. And their vitamin D levels are really low as well. So if you're actively avoiding sunlight, um, then I think, yeah, we need to consider it. Now, it's... We've become scared of the very thing that's keeping the world alive, haven't we, the sun? Now, I understand why, because of the, the skin cancer and everything like that, but I just think we've gone that a little bit too far. So, you know, I, I look back to my, I've got a five-year-old, um, and when he was at nursery a few years ago, if we forgot his cap or we hadn't signed a consent form for sunscreen, he wasn't allowed to play outside. So we've got to a point where, even if we're putting somebody outside for a minute, we're slathering them in sun cream. Now, if that's the approach we want to take, because we are that scared of um, skin cancer and melanoma, well, that, that's each individual's prerogative. But what I would then say is that we do need to really consider vitamin D supplementation if you're going to be that um, avoidance of the, of the sun. And this is why in the UK at the moment, rickets is back on the rise, because we have become particularly scared of the sunlight, we're not eating much oily fish, we're not taking the cod liver oil like we used to take, and we really don't want to let rickets come back because that is one horrible disease. Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. So you, you just mentioned a couple of things like uh, fish oil, cod liver oil, and so on. So if, if we are considering um, taking supplemental forms of, of vitamin D, uh, I mean, what, what's the good, bad, and the ugly in, in that area? Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, if you're an elite athlete, the first thing is then we've got to make sure we're getting a tested form. So, you know, um, this is something I'm sure you've talked about a few times in, in the podcast. Um, in, in terms of, um, we've t- covered D3 versus D2. It really does need to be a, a D3 version of it. And... A standard multivitamin would just wouldn't have enough of it in. So, right. um, where, where you, you might see 400 international units in, in a standard multivitamin, you know, you'd probably need to be taking five and six of these a day. I, I probably wouldn't be going. You can pick up 50,000 IU tablets, which may be recommended once a month or something like that. Personally, I wouldn't. I would be going something around a two to five thousand mark. Um, if it's a two thousand, I'd be taking it daily if we can if we can remember. But for me, the the ugly is the, the really high dose where we might get wrong um, the D two or you know the the non tested versions that you might be able to get. Yeah, no, I think I think it's always best to be sort of safe and cautious. And um, and what about I mean, you hear about different different sort of delivery mechanisms, you know, like an oil base, uh, ones in a tablet. I mean, do you think there's any significance to that? Again, I, I would love to do all these studies um, and so I've got my own evidence. I, all, all I can go back to when I'm not sure on something, Lawrence, is what I've done. And, you know, in, in our lab, we've seen get levels up very quickly just using a tablet-based form. Um, so um, about two months' supply of it in tablet form is going to cost about eight UK pounds. So I probably wouldn't go much beyond something like that. I would find a tested tablet form of about 2,000 and, 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 and take it each day. And 
I, I guess the next thing we're going to move on to is, um, you know, because we, we've talked a lot about when should you take it. I, I guess the biggest question we've got from the sports science world is what are the effects of it? You know, yeah. is it really improving performance? Yeah, no, well, uh, before we get, because there's a couple of things in there I wanted to get into, but uh, briefly, uh, do you want to just, just tell us about the pharmacokinetics of vitamin D? Because it's, you know, you, you let's say someone discovers their vitamin D levels are low or for one reason or another, they're like, ah, oh, I really need to get on vitamin D. I mean, it's not like you're going to take it today and then tomorrow you've got normal levels of vitamin D, is it? No, absolutely not. And, you know, if you was going to go to a doctor's, they would use a much more subtle approach so a, a standard approach within a, a doctor's setting is um, something like a, a product called Decristol which is 20,000 international units and they might give you that um, once a week for a few weeks and then once a month and they'd be happy to correct your vitamin deficiency within 6 to 12 months and then you know we're all sorted and you'll just do that maintenance once a month and you'd, you'd all be fine that's pretty not good enough for from a world we work in, which is athletic and performance. So um, we've, we've shown that within about four to six weeks, we can actually begin to get it high. People would normally talk about three months because, as you say, it's, it's a fat-soluble vitamin. It accumulates. It takes time to actually um, get the levels up there. So, yeah, you're not going to see an effect overnight. You, um, you probably are going to wait at least eight weeks, if not three months, to actually get a steady-state concentration. And um, so if you're going to get a repeat test, don't take it a week after and think this isn't, this isn't working. The, the other important thing, though, um, to bear in mind is that if we do um, retest uh, after two to three months, what we need to uh, uh, work out to work is best. We, don't, we need to know that our starting concentration will also have an effect. So if you're really deficient, we know that you'll get up there faster, like the body's almost wanting it. And if you're just a borderline deficient, uh, it might take time. We also know that there's evidence, and this is where I've fallen a bit short in some of my studies, is that perhaps when I've supplemented people, I've not left them there long enough. So I've tested that the vitamin D is up within, say, three months, and I've looked at the effect on performance, but what would be interesting then is to leave them at that level for much longer. So not just get it up there and let it come back down again. You know, maybe let's get it up there and maintain it. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's fascinating, all this. I mean, it really is. It's certainly not, a, you know, it's not going to happen in days, and I think it's always interesting that it takes time, particularly mm. when you think how clever the body is and how it manages uh, you know, it, it, it sort of exposure to, to sun and uh, varies. You know, the the, the, the you know the, the potential toxic effects of that. I think is yeah. is just. I mean, obviously, we've barely scratched the surface in understanding all of this. So you you had mentioned um, some of your research in your lab on the performance effects. So let let's just get into that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we know. We know quite a bit um, about its effect on bone health. And in fact, I've got a, a great buddy of all of ours, uh, Craig Sell, coming on shortly. And we're going to talk about a few things, including bone health. So I, I guess we can get into 
a bit of vitamin D and bone health as well. But what about performance and muscle function and sort of anabolic effects that you hear about? Yeah, well, if you've got Craig coming, I'll put a pin in the bone health because yeah. Craig's forgot more about bone health than I know. So um, you've got a real expert there. Yeah. So I'll look forward to listening to that myself. Um, I'll stick on the other things that you know we've been looking at. So the reason I got into this was muscle and muscle function. Um, the first study I did was, let's just call it a pilot study because it, it wasn't big enough numbers. I basically tested one of the football teams I was working with, um, split them in half, put half on a placebo, half on a vitamin D. And we actually did see an improvement in performance. Some just basic measures of performance, CMJ, um, some bench press type things, some borderline significant, some actually significant even some improvements in sprinting performance. And that got me really excited. Since then, I've not been able to replicate that data. And the reason I don't think I've been able to replicate it was for some reason, that first team that I tested, pretty much all the players were clinically deficient. So when I'd say about 50 being a cutoff for sufficiency, quite a few were in single figures, seven, eights, and nines. So they were really, really deficient. And we saw that in them, we did improve performance. I then repeated that study with my grad student, um, Dan Owens, who's doing some great work on vitamin D at the moment. Uh, I'll tell you a bit about his work shortly. And we used um, muscle twitch uh, to get uh, maximum titanic force and time to peak twitch, you know, really to look at muscle in a better way. And we saw no effect in, in these. And these athletes were all at around about 50 nanomoles per litre. So that got me thinking in terms of pure muscle function, the key factor is your starting concentration. And, it, and there's been meta-analysis since then which would confirm that. And if your vitamin D is under 25 nanomoles per litre, there is a decent body of evidence that you can improve muscle function. Now, in, in my experience, that will pick up around about 5 to 10% of athletes that I've tested. So, that, you know, even though it's not massive, that's a simple way to improve the performance of five, four, ten percent of your of your athletes. So, muscle function—that's where I'm standing at the moment. Some people would argue. Some people have said I've not taken vitamin D high enough, so I've redone that and I've taken people to up to around about 150 nanomoles per liter, and I still didn't see an effect. Now, as I said earlier, maybe I needed to leave them at 150 for six months, but I didn't see an effect. Though. There's some great work. Uh, coming out on muscle regeneration and that would suggest to cut a long story short that around about 75 nanomoles per litre might be the interesting number for speeding up muscle regeneration so I'm looking at this myself with Dan Owens at the moment um, and we're going to damage muscle fibres in culture and look at the satellite cell response so really trying to understand what's going on there a little bit better so in terms of regeneration it seems that it's important Mike Gleason at Loughborough has recently shown that those with 120 nanomoles per litre um, got less upper respiratory tract infections, and when they had it, the symptoms were less severe. So there's arguments there that uh, immune function is better. And another one of my grad students, Richard Allison out in Qatar, he's shown again that there's a correlation with cardiac um, structure but not function so the actual cardiac structure would appear to be better the higher you go massive caveat I've got to point out on all these Lauren and 
if the listeners take one thing, it's this. Most of the studies that are showing a real benefit of vitamin D are correlative, not causative. And that, what I'm saying by that is that what we've seen is in mass big participation studies, those with the highest vitamin D seem to be doing better at a variety of things, and then with the lowest seem to be doing worse at a variety of things. Now, that correlation could well be a spurative one. It could be that just by being physically active and outdoor and getting sunlight, you get all these beneficial effects, and that, by chance, then gives you higher vitamin D. So what we really need more studies of now are the cause and effect ones and a bit of a less reliance on the correlation studies. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I'm just, my brain is starting to go, hey, there's a lot of information here, Graham. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, well, no, I, I think it's incredible. And I think a lot of people take too much for granted in, in, uh, in what they read about this stuff and don't realize most of what we're talking about here is still only scratching the surface. But, you know, although we're discovering many of these things and guys like you are, you know, finding out all this incredible stuff, it's still a bit soon to jump to, you know, some of the conclusions that we hear, um, like, uh, you know, vitamin C being, um, you know, the, uh, the ultimate cancer slayer and, uh, you know, and, uh, but I mean, another one I've heard is, um, uh, vitamin D is a testosterone booster. Um, I mean, the, the 25 OHD, um, I can say is a sec, is a sequel steroid. So it behaves very similar, um, and in theory, what we can actually get is differentiation, cell proliferation. Um, we can um, uh, we we can actually uh, it shows that in culture there's effects downstream of um, AKT turning on protein synthesis. So there was a really nice study done where cells were incubated with. 125 OHD, which is the active form of 25 OHD. So incubated with that and um, uh, insulin, and, and what you you saw was that the ones with the higher concentrations of 25 125 OHD got a better protein synthesis response. So in culture, absolutely, and I think this is why the athletic world has has absolutely jumped on it. Um, I think you're right. There is a literature there done with a testosterone. Whether it's going to be a major effect and actually result in the pharmacological increases in testosterone that I know some people desire would be, in my view, questionable. Yeah, it's. I mean, my my view on this is it's just it's like so many other things out there that uh, you know things are stretched a bit far, and of course, just because you see vitamin d in one form or another in some textbook you know in some sort of biochemical pathway or especially when it relates to things like anabolic hormones of course you know they put sort of join a few dots together and hey presto this supplement stack combination is gonna you know turn your uh, 13 inch biceps into 60 inch biceps you know it's just absolutely <laughs> and this is why i got interested in this at first laura i thought this was a winner yeah. and uh what you find is, like most topics, but I think particularly vitamin D, it's quite easy to cherry pick the literature to say exactly what you want to say. And, and what we need to be doing as hopefully reputable scientists is 
uh, you know, showing both sides of his story and um, hopefully given a balanced view, explain where the gaps in the literature are and either myself or other scientists will try and fill these gaps but we, we can't be cherry picking literature which is what I think a lot of the, what you would class as bro scientists are, are doing on their um, blogs and using it to sell things. But Yeah, no, no, no. Balance. Well, that is entirely the purpose of this podcast series is we try and, you know, we do science and uh, uh, the conclusion that we have in most of these episodes on pretty much any topic is we really don't know anything. And, you know, it, it, it is amazing just how far things are taken, particularly when it's related to supplements. And of course, vitamin D is, is in the super leagues now when it comes to, uh, uh, to this whole area of, of supplements. So anyway, listen, um, we're out of time. Um, I can't believe that I had various things that we were going to talk about, and we managed to spend 45 minutes just on vitamin D. So um, That's impressive. I was looking is. forward to talking about redox signaling. I know. Well, the oxygen story, but well, there you go. Well, guess what, Graham? That means you're coming oh. back. Yeah. Um, so, listen, guys. Um, thank you for taking the time to listen to another fantastic uh, podcast. I say fantastic because, obviously... Um, I have had the pleasure of hearing the, this episode before all of you, and I know this is going to be another winner. Uh, so, Graham, I'd love to thank you for your valuable time. I know, um, I know how much you, uh, how passionate you are about all these things, which just comes through uh, in all of your lectures. And um, I look forward to getting you back on, and and uh, you know, we'll get into uh, another one of your topics that you're into about antioxidants and like you said, redox reactions and various other things. So uh, uh, thank you so much, Graham. No problem. Great to uh, speak to you again, Lauren. Yeah, great stuff. Okay, guys, so that's the end of episode 12 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Um, do please uh, come back to us on iTunes or for Analog. Uh, there's various apps that you can get hold of the We Do Science podcast. Just search for Guru Performance or We Do Science podcast. You can find out more about us and what we're up to at guruperformance.com and uh, also learn from um, guys like Graham on the ISSN Diploma where you can read and hear more about that also on guruperformance.com so for now uh, we'll call that an end my name is Laurent Bannock and I look forward to bringing another podcast to you very soon <laughs>